said back in our day in the 60s you are playing some flaming hot acts i appreciate that i uh didn't date a lot when i was in high school you didn't you spend all your time practicing pretty much <laughs> up till about my sophomore year and then i started branching out you you really are considered to be one of the top guitar players in the world and and i don't i'm trying to figure out how people get to that point because I'm in, I'm fascinated by anybody who is really, really good at any particular artistic or creative endeavor. Uh, talking with, uh, I talked with Tommy John, the great baseball player, a couple of days ago, and uh, he, essentially everybody seems to have uh, kind of the same answer. I say, so let me ask you the question and see if I get the same kind of answer from you. Is it, at what point did it occur to you? You know, I'm really pretty good at this. I might be, uh, I might have a, I might have a future here. Well, um, I would say when I used to call up my friends playing on my Japanese lousy guitar that I bought on my paper route and I had it all wired in my bedroom and uh, I, I played through two different things. I had this really cheap low-powered kind of Japanese guitar amp that was kind of useless. And then I used to plug into a tape recorder that had a tube power amp in it. And it has an oval speaker. And if you plugged it in there and you turned it up, the guitar input was hotter than the mic input. And it would distort. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was doing my Jimi Hendrix impersonations, I could kind of get that sound and so i put the telephone next to the oval speaker and i call up friends of mine i go listen to this listen to what i was figuring out today <laughs> they would listen and they would go that sounds pretty good <laughs> and i go like really you know and i that really literally started with just little tiny snippets of confidence building like that where I could trust personal friends to give me an honest answer. Because if they didn't like it, they'd say, oh, Lewis, that sucks, you know, because they were honest, you know. And uh, but that would happen at first. And then as I improved, I would get like, wow, that sounds really good, you know, because I'd play along with, you know, you know, Foxy Lady and Purple Haze and all that stuff, you know, and and, uh, emulate these things. And I was doing a really lousy guitar, too. So um, (laughs) it wasn't but, you know, probably about six months later, maybe a year later, I was finally able to get a decent guitar and really start getting serious about what I was doing. Um, but that's when I felt that I probably could do it. Uh, it, it uh, there was that, and then th- that's the physical, you know, uh, gifting that you're given before. That, you, that, your, that your fingers work the way they do, and they well, do it in concert with your brain? Correct, but there's also something that happens 
when you find out that you were actually blessed with this. Yeah. The, you know, the creator gives us this gift before we're even born. I'm a teacher. I teach guitar and bass. And I, I have students all the time. And some of them are very good students. Some of them play wonderfully, but they don't have the gift. Yeah. They just don't have the gift. And I just happen to have the fretted instrument gift. I didn't know it at the time, but over time I finally realized, oh my God, I don't have to work very hard at this. It's pretty, it comes to me pretty easily. And other people that I've taught always ask me the question, like, well, how did you do blah, blah, And I go like, it kind of came natural. I don't, I can't teach that part to you. You're going to have to either have it or you don't. And if you don't, you're going to work really hard and you're going to probably become okay but you're not going to be a, a, a you're not you won't be make, making a living playing fretted instruments. That is brutally honest, you know. And it's like because you know even I even have grown t students that come to me and they're, you know, they're like doctors and lawyers and pharmacists and you know they start getting better and better and they they listen to what I say and I teach them and they get really good and their their family and their friends start telling them, hey, you sound really good, man. You maybe think you should do this, you know, blah, blah, blah. and yeah. literally have them ask you think i should quit my job and oh gosh for a living i literally have had grown grown educated gainfully employed people ask me that question and it's tough because you know you don't want to burst their bubble and you kind of have to just go well you know you could try it if you want but i don't recommend it <laughs> it's going to be a really rough road even for people that are blessed that have the gift have what we call in the industry the curse because when you have the gift it becomes a curse and when it becomes a curse then you're bound to do it and then you know your parents are upset and then later on in life you know your family's upset and your your wife and your kids are going you really want to do this you're really going to try to make a living do is that the point when you're calling the curse is that the point where it becomes a calling yeah i mean i even had a point in my life where i already had a hit record and i had a nice big house and my dad and my wife got on a conference call with me and said, okay, Kenny, you know, you've done this for a while now. <laughs> you know, maybe it's time for you to go to back to school and really start thinking about a real job. And an intervention. And my <laughs> wife is a professional musician. And so, it was right. her. so for them to do that, it was like, huh, really? <laughs> really want me to like completely shift right now and... I've kind of hit, you know, what I was hoping to hit in my goals and maybe go farther. And you have to keep pushing forward. You just, you have to like, kind of like go la, 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 and not really listen to the other people. Because if you have the gift or what we call the curse, you know, in the industry, uh, you have to live with that curse and you have to, you know, wrestle with it. You have to get down in the dirt and get in the gutter and get dirty. And it's like, it's, it's. It's tough and you will drive people nuts around you and they'll think that you're in need of an intervention. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, you just have to disbelieve in yourself. That's all. And, and you almost have to be a little bit of a narcissist, a little bit of a self-serving person yeah. to be able to punch through. Yeah. And if people will get hurt around you, will be disappointed with you. But in the end, They'll go, mm, you know, I'm glad you stuck with it because you really, you really pulled it off. You really pulled it off. I didn't think you could. You know, yeah. I've, I've, I've known people like that in other walks. Um, yeah. I mean, look at Steve Jobs. I mean, just as an example, I mean, here's a guy that already had a successful company and then they threw him out and they said, you're yeah, done. Right. You know, you're done. You know, you don't have any more to add. You know, thank you very much. Bye. You know, and he was like, mm, I don't think so. 
you know, and uh, and he came back, you know, and he came back with the iPhone. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, yeah. like, we are slaves to these little hand devices. And, it's and, like, and he and he left us with it. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if he blessed us or cursed us, but there you go. There's the curse. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I uh, I was being in radio for fifty years. I uh, I knew I worked with Rush Limbaugh before Ooh. he went before he went national. Okay, and uh, I don't want to get into a big thing, but Rush Rush is uh, not the same person that most people think of him. I mean, on the air, he was on the air the way he that was that was his belief and everything. But but my point was that uh, at, at, for a while there in Sacramento at KFBK, I was his bo- boss. Oh. And I took him, I took him to lunch one day and I said, if you, you know, I said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's your, it's your show. But if you don't find something to talk about besides politics and the Russians, your career is going to go right down the toilet. And he thanked me for not telling him what he should do. And he went ahead and became the richest and most famous radio broadcaster in all of history with all the baggage that went with it for him personally. But you can, you, you can, you can find an endless number of people in, in the performing arts, uh, you know, actors. Well, to Singers. me, here's Wizard of Oz. You know, he was the guy behind the curtain. He wasn't the wizard because right. yeah. later when we pulled the, the veil open, the wizard was actually a pretty nice guy. Yeah. But he put on this show yeah. that was really scary and it was really negative and it made yeah. people, you know, like yeah. scared fear all the time and that's what he was he was kind of like the wizard of oz you know what i was getting it was that you were talking about you know almost have to be a narcissist and i think i think that's true of people who succeed in extremely high level of anything because they have to believe in themselves in ways that other people can't even imagine that's right their dreams and their successes and and so forth and i guess that's just like a one step at a time kind of process and anybody the Pretenders is a theme song. Can't be all that bad, you know. <laughs> you came from a musical family, though, didn't you? Uh, my father was a swing enthusiast. He was 4F during World War II. So he stayed in town and built bombers with my mom at Lockheed in Burbank. Oh, wow. And they were jitterbuggers. And they loved swing music. And my dad had a big record collection. So I grew up around a house that had a drum set and a guitar. He even had a saxophone at one point, but I, I think that had gone away by the time I showed up. But he really wanted to be a musician, you know, and he just never had the gift. And I think he realized that at some point, and he just went to work for the state. And, you know, he just kind of said, yeah, I guess other people will do that. But he, his spirit was to be a swing musician. So I had this swing music in my childhood that was always, you know, going. The first time I got my First clarinet, for instance. Uh, well, actually, well, actually, my first instrument was a ukulele. So when I was about seven, I got a ukulele and I started playing when the Saints come marching in. And uh, so, oh, I'm sorry, swing low, sweet chariot. That's what uh-huh. it was. Ukulele it was sweet chariot, and I would really swing it hard. And then when I got my clarinet, I started doing when the Saints come marching in. And this is because of my dad's influence. And I would just start doodling. And my teacher would always go, why are you always playing that? It's like, you know, you know, come on, you got to learn the music, you got to learn how to read, you know, stop playing all that stupid stuff. And uh, I just had it on my body. And so 
My brother and sister were folkies. They were much older than me, and they started singing for our family functions. In the early 60s, they were doing, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Brothers Four, and Kingston Trio, and Ian and Sylvia, and then some Dylan tunes, even the Mamas and Papas, you know. And so that was, uh, I, I was very jealous that they were able to do that, and I couldn't join in, you know. So that's when I got the ukulele and started learning all these Negro spirituals, as they call them. <laughs> this ukulele book I got, and uh, you know, old Black Joe, and you know, and uh, it, when they down by the river and all, you know, with two bees, you know, it's like you know all this old. <laughs> yeah, it was like crazy, and it was like you know uh, Stephen Foster kind of stuff. And um, so to ask me if I came from a musical family, I would say I came from a music enthusiast family, but none of them were pro professional musicians. Well, but it, you know, it lit the fire. And, and, uh, and, and did it give you, you feel that that, uh, that gave you a, a broader appreciation of various types of music as opposed to somebody who grows up to be 13 years old and decides, I love the Beach Boys and I want to be one of those? Well, that went on too, but I felt like I was kind of obligated to fulfill the dreams that my family members were not able. My mother auditioned for the Little Rascals. Really? Back in the 30s, yeah. And it's like she wanted to be a, an entertainer, you know. My dad's mother was a silent movie actress along with her sisters. They were actually pretty successful. They used to do movies with Gene Harlow and everything. This is during the silent era. And they were crazy flappers snorting coke and running around with no bra, you know. And so, you know, I mean, I was already kind of like from this spirit of Hollywood craziness, you know. And uh, I had to fulfill that for the family. At least I felt I did, you know. They didn't think that I needed to. They were going, oh, you don't have to do that. Just go and become an electronic engineer and join the Navy and avoid the draft. You know, I mean, not avoid the draft, but go into, go into the draft and go to Vietnam and, you know, just, you know, go to the submarine corps and be safe. You know, that's what my, my plan was. My vector was to become an electronic engineer. And then they abolished the draft. And then, boom, I was free. And I had a guitar. And so I went nuts and I completely became the black sheep and went against the grain. And uh, like you say, you know, you, nobody really believed my dad. You say, you roll your eyes in the back of your head while you're playing lead guitar. You'll never make it. You got to, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> he thought he knew the entertainment industry. He didn't realize that the psychedelic era meant that we were both supposed to have our freak flag flying high. You know, he didn't, he didn't understand that, you know. So, uh, so that's kind of what happened, you know, and uh, so I came from a music appreciation family and I felt that I need to fulfill the dreams and the goals that they really couldn't have the guts enough to go after. And probably not the ability and probably not that, that drive and that, that narcissism maybe. Correct. <laughs> Take us through the journey. So what happened? How did, how did you get going? Okay, well, so there was that part of the dexterity and the gift that we just discussed. I, I played the ukulele pretty good right away. And then when I got my hand around my brother's guitar, I started learning all of his Peter, Paul, and Mary books, and I just kept going. And then the English invasion happened, and boom. You know, I mean, Beach Boys were fine, but when I heard the Yardbirds and the Kinks and, you know, the Dave Clark Five and, you know, the... I mean, all these really cool groups. This is even before Cream and Hendrix. I'm talking about just the early English invasion. You know, the Stones. You know, the Beatles. Oh, that's were, what got me too. I, I I got the same. When I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I went, 
you know, I said, that's a product, you know, that's not music. Of course, later on, I learned to appreciate that they were great songwriters. But at first, you know, with the suits and the bowl cuts and right. stuff, they're a product, you know, they're not really, uh, they're not the animals. They're not the yardbirds. You know, the yardbirds of the animals of the stones were playing real blues. They were playing real American blues that was brought to them by John Mayall and Georgie Fame over in London in about 1962. And when they were little kids, they were learning this music that we had already abandoned in America and had banned from radio. So I couldn't even hear the real blues. I couldn't get it. I didn't have access to it. So these English guys brought it back to me, thank goodness, you know, and they were able to educate me and that which our American heritage was based upon because of Jim Crow and because of what was going on in this country, we weren't allowed to embrace our actual cotton patch, Mississippi desperation mm. blues, you know, we couldn't get it, you know, so that's where I got it. And then pirate radio came, you know, and it's like all that stuff was going on. And so what happened was the, the gift was there. I could play the instrument. I really was excited about the blues and things like that. And then in 1968, I went to a rally at my junior high school. I was kind of playing a little guitar by then. I had already borrowed an electric guitar and I was, you know, learning. My friend had a bomb shelter next door. We used to go down there and blow our brain, you know, stay overnight. All summer long from 66 to 67, I was in a bomb shelter playing guitar. That's outstanding. Anybody, I could blow my brains out. It's funny, we have to wake up every couple hours to get the air movement going so we wouldn't suffocate because it was a hand crank, yeah, yeah, yeah. oil filtered, you know, air cleaner or whatever. <laughs> and when we get up, we plug back in and we start playing again. We had a little 45 player down there, we play the records and we play along with it. So that's how I got that going. But still, I didn't have the uh, the stage drug yet. And so what happened in 68, I was at a rally. I was invited to do a light show for a band. Uh, one of my student friends had a band uh, called The Exit, and they were playing this rally for student body election or something like that. And I was invited to help with the light show. And all I was supposed to do was scoop colored jello out of a pan and stick it in two Pyrex bowls that my friend had an overhead projector that he was projecting up on a sheet behind the band to do the light show, right? Yeah, the Thermibas. Oozing colors. You know, yeah. and so my job was just to spatulate the orange, lime, and cherry jello. <laughs> it in the bowl he would move it around until it all mush moshed into a brown color he'd throw it out and he'd need fresh jello so that was <laughs> backstage doing that uh, a friend of mine that was in a little practice band with me was going to play bass that night in the band because their normal bass player who was a, a kind of a grown guy at a, i think he was already out of high school was out of town and so they trained Rick, my friend, to play the bass. And my drummer friend had his brother bring over his bass amp and get bass guitar. Beautiful Fender Precision bass and a beautiful Fender amp. I mean, they were just pristine. They were sitting up on the stage and they were ready to play. And I was so jealous because I wanted to I wanted to play in the band, but I never played a bass before. I didn't even know what they how they were tuned or anything. Because uh, we didn't have a bass in our practice band. Because in those days, everybody wanted to play guitar. You know, you had three guitars and drums. I mean, that was the band's year. So, long story short, I'm sitting there spatulating in Jell-O. We get a, a, a message from the office saying that Rick was grounded by his mother. He wasn't going to be able to play the bass because he had done 
to the school, and he couldn't come. And so they were panicking. Here's the curtains are just about ready to open to start this first song. Drum, the drummer, John, said to me, he says, you play a little guitar, don't you? Wait, I barely knew him. <clears throat> I said, yeah, I've been playing with Rick, you know, but I don't know. I, uh, he goes, you got to play bass right now. And I went, what are you talking about? I don't even know. How to, I'm spatulating Joe. Like, I, don't I don't know how to play the bass. I don't even know how to do it. He goes, you're going to play right now. Right now. Get on that bass now. I mean, he literally was talking to me like that because he wanted the show to go on, which is a typical thing that is part of the curse. You know, the show must go on whether, you know, planets are being destroyed in the cosmos and, <laughs> are dying and women are dying. I mean, it's like everything has to give way for the show because the show is everything because our egos and everything that is part of See, I didn't fit, know this yet. So I go over and I go, really? Okay. So I put the bass on. He goes, first song, everyday people slide the family stone curtains open. Boom. One, two, three, boom, boom, boom. He starts playing the drums. I don't know the song. I've heard it on the radio, but I don't know how to play anything. I've never played the bass. I'm zoom. I'm I'm going up and down the bass, trying to find the note. Now, side story. Earlier in the night, there was a girl named Renee Ballard that I thought was really cute. Horn room glasses, real cute. She had braces, but she was really cute. You could tell that she had a lot of potential, but nobody was paying attention to her. So I asked her if she wanted me to get her a glass of punch. And she kind of went, no, you know, she was real shy, <laughs> rejected. And I ran, I slinked off and then I went back to, you know, get my jello spatula out, you know. So I was all depressed while I was doing the jello thing. So I'm playing, I'm looking around for this bass note. I'm all, and, and the drummer's going, no, 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 there it is. There, no, you missed it. Oh, shit. You know, it's like, you know, so I, I finally find the note. Now, this, I don't know if you're familiar with this song. Sometimes I'm right. But I could be wrong. Oh, of course. My own beliefs are in my. Well, I was a, I was a top forty disc jockey. I started where you it's were listening. One bass note. It's Pardon? one, David. One, and I couldn't find it, but I finally found it. And the drum goes, yeah, 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 stand right there. It's just eight notes on one bass note. One. <laughs> so I'll get it, and I'm working that eighth note, man, on that one note, and I start getting comfortable. <laughs> around and I start seeing the people and they're all kind of going like this and then you know they, they extend the song for a long time they have a speech you know we bring the volume down we keep the music going so the kids are still going they're doing their thing you know guys are running for senior you know, president they're talking stuff and then the band comes back up again I'm playing my one note all of a sudden here comes Renee Ballard she comes to my feet and she comes right up to me and she looks up like this <laughs> playing this one note because <laughs> I'm answering your question right now. Yeah. And that's what I said to myself, you know what? I could do this for a living. This is, <laughs> this is really cool. You know? And then of course, you know, we played a bunch of other songs, which I messed up. I didn't know them all, you know, midnight hour and satisfaction and whatever the hell it was, Gloria, but I got through it. I got through the night and at the end of the night, Renee Ballard wanted me to get her a cup of punch. Oh man. All right, now you're talking about uh, you're talking about years where you and I were kind of coexisting and didn't know each other in Sacramento, right? Yeah, that's this, this Sam Brennan down by the river, down in South in Southland Park, that area. You're oh. you're a couple couple three years younger than me. So when did you graduate and from where? Yeah, yeah, I graduated in seventy two. Yeah, from that's, that's what I thought. I've graduated from sixty nine in uh, at North Highlands in Highlands High School. And the really weird thing about that, I think I wrestled Highland at one point. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm having trouble for some reason when I talk. I'm not hearing you come back. So it's it's. it's well, Zoom like, has a way of canceling out. It has to jump back and forth to whoever's yeah. got the biggest waveform. Yeah. Anyway, um, I was just going to say the, what really blew my mind when I talked to you a week or so ago before we set this up was uh, not only not only do we have the, the the friend in common, Steve Beam, who put us together, but also the fact that you you uh, you grew up in Sacramento, starting in like 1960 or thereabout. I'm from Sacramento. I spent my first 50 years of my life there. And KROY, man. That's it. I was on KROY. Yeah. And I was I was on KNDE. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so all these these coincidences, um, and and then I found out that you and I both worked at the Sound of Music on Fulton Avenue, little little bit of a music store. Dave That's Weir. weird. A Weir or whatever. Wild. Wild. Right. Right. And yeah. Candy, Candy Klein. Oh my God, I had an affair with Candy Klein. <laughs> <laughs> She was married to Dave. Oh my gosh! She was like seventeen years old. You know. <laughs> and you knew Steve Westmoreland, who was an also yeah, darn he, good guitarist, teacher, and like you know all those guys, you know, and Spider, and on the drums, and uh, God, I mean, all those guys, and Dave Stout, and I think his name is Stout or Stout. Yeah, I can't remember. There's a couple of teachers, really good players. One guy turned me on to the Jeff Beck Truth album while I was there. Yeah. I asked him, how do you become a better guitar player? He goes, oh, man, Jeff Beck, truth. It'll be the truth, man. You got to get it. And so I started woodshedding Jeff Beck, truth. And then, of course, I'd already heard Hendrix and Cream. But, I mean, between Jeff Beck, Clapton, and Hendrix, and then a little bit of Jimmy Page, too, I kind of formed my style on guitar until I got into college. And then when I went to Consumedus River College, I got into the jazz program and that's when I started learning Wes Montgomery and you know Joe Pass and all that stuff. So that was all part of my education in Sacramento. So from there, how did you proceed to the point where you're playing like, music for money and so forth, huh? Drummer that I told you about, John, there was an exit that told me to get the bass on, you know? Yeah. That guy's family were in the music business. His brother Bill had played with the Righteous Brothers and was living in Hidden Hills in L.A. and was driving a Rolls Royce as a studio musician. His brother Tom ended up, you know, engineering all the Jackson 5 and Silk Degrees by Boss Gags and all this stuff. So he was a great engineer. Another guy named Don was the promoter in Sacramento that promoted all those shows at Cal Expo that had like Linda Ronstadt and yeah. Steve Wonder and all that stuff. He was a promoter and he was also an artist, but he became a music publisher and so I had these three other brothers, other than John, who was a great drummer, that were all in L.A., that were all, I was going down there and visiting them, you know, because we were all, they were kind of mentoring me. And uh, so in 1970, New Year's Day of 1973, after going to college for, you know, six months and working at Sound of Music, and then, you know, I finally said, you know what, I'm going to move to L.A., and I'm going to let L.A. have the opportunity to let Kenny Lee Lewis record on their tracks. <laughs> Give them the opportunity to let me play with you. I mean, that's I, felt. I mean, that's that narcissism, right? So I drive down there. I enroll in CSUN, uh, Cal State Northridge, which right. had a music program. And I sign up for, you know, the stage band. I go, oh, they're going to love me. <laughs> I get this notice that says, you're going to have to audition for the for the stage band. I went, what? Me? Kenny Lee Lewis? 
<laughs> I got a L4C with Johnny Smith pickups, and I can note. I read notation. I know all the chords. I know how to improvise. I mean, I'd already been to Reno, you know, and participated with the jazz band, you know, and all the people from De Anza College and stuff. We had we had a hell of a band, and I could. I wanted to be the next Lee Ridenour, Larry Carlton, you know, and so I'm down there. <laughs> I go to the audition. I bring my jazz guitar. I'm all excited, you know. I, I see this long line of men about my age now with beards like me now yeah. with L7s and L4s and L5s, Gibsons, <laughs> wound G-string, flat wounds, waiting to audition for the big band. They're all studio guys and people that play their ass off that have been in L.A. for years. And they <laughs> just take a pottery class and be in the big band so they can play some great music. And there's like 50 of them. <laughs> I get in line and I go, what am I in line? And I start talking to them. I said, who are you? It's like, you know, really good. You know, PZ and, you know, like all these other guys and Diorio and, you know, all the guys. I mean, I met them all that day. I think Tommy Tedesco might have been in line. I can't remember. They just wanted to play Buddy Rich and, you know, Sammy Nestico charts and, you know, and they wanted to play like Oliver Nelson charts and they wanted to play like really cool out there esoteric jazz. And they did that at CSUN. So <laughs> I get into the audition and they go, they look at me, and, you know, I'm this kid, right? And I plug in and they go, okay, we're going to do Cherokee 232. Ready? Okay, here we go. One, two, one, two, three. <laughs> I didn't know Cherokee. <laughs> I'm like trying to sight read, and it's like, you know, five ledger lines above, and then it's all 16th notes, you know. With <laughs> I'm just making an ass out of myself. And I and they go, okay, okay, let's try it again. Okay, you know, you were a little nervous, you know. And it's, <laughs> it was just like, a, it's like going for the chorus line in New York. It was the same thing, you know. And so I totally failed. But then I told them I played bass two. Because I did, and I read bass clef. And they said, well, okay, well, then I addition on bass. So I played bass, and I did pretty good. Because one note at a time, and it's all within the staff normally, except for a couple of ledger lines. And so I did pretty good on the bass audition. And, of course, they called me a, a couple of weeks later and said, well, I'll tell you what. we got an A, B, and a C band. You can play bass in the C band. That was my introduction to coming to Los Angeles to, to take them by storm, if you will. And I said, No. I don't want to do that. <laughs> How dare you insult me? <laughs> so it was the stupidest thing I ever could have done because if had I done that, had I stayed in town and worked my way up, I probably could have got the guitar chair and the C band, the A, the B band, and maybe the A band eventually. But I was so insulted, I just quit college completely. And I went to go work at a music store, not unlike The Sound of Music at Wallach's Music City, Splevin's Music, and Topanga Plaza. So that was my, you know, my little escape to get back to my, what I knew, which were a bunch of long-haired guys that smelled like patchouli selling <laughs> strings in a guitar store, you know, and talking about the way it's going to be, you know. So that's what happened in, uh, in the first six months of me moving in 1973 to L.A. 1973, so you're right out of high school at that point. You're not even, you're not so, even 20 years old. I was in Sacramento. I was working at a music store wishing that I could do something. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to jump ahead for a minute and then I want to come back to this because it's kind of but like, I think the reason why I told that story for you, David, is to show you that narcissism. Yeah. You know, that yeah. incredible, ridiculously 
fantastical belief that you're the best, you know, when you're not, you know. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what I think happens is I think, and I think what a lot of us run into this in, in various businesses, you, you, you go to get a job in a career field that you're, you really want to do well in and you think you're made out for it. And then you start hearing all the BS from people, you know, you hear from people who have their own motives for why they're saying the things they're saying. And then you have people who think they know more about this business than they really do. And you can just kind of see through it. There's something about that in, in, uh, you know, special people that kind of see their way through and they just go, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to do what you're telling me. But the medal of freedom was a little over the top. <laughs> Let's admit that. <laughs> <laughs> Those were two narcissists jacking up each other on the line. <laughs> Anyway, just jump forward for a minute because you've been talking about playing the bass. I don't know when you joined the Steve Miller band, you were playing, you were playing uh, a guitar, and then at some point you switched to bass, and that's because somebody in the band left and they replaced him with somebody else or something like that. How long have you been playing bass primarily? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because back in Sacramento, I was an original band with a guy named Bruce Lano who wrote songs. I met him in the sixth grade of all plays, and he was writing original material in the sixth grade and had a band. He was the guy that really got me thinking that I could do this. And uh, so he played guitar and bass just like me. We both did. I don't know why. It was just something that happened with the necessity of trying to fill in with bands. So when he was singing his original material that he wrote on guitar, he wanted to play guitar. And so we needed a bass player. So I bought a bass and I started learning it and I would play bass behind his original songs. And then when we do the Hendrix and the Cream and the Jeff Beck or whatever we were doing, I was the, the great lead guitar player in the band, and so he would pick up the bass and back me while I did all that stuff. So we went back and forth like that throughout our set all night long. So we both learned bass and guitar at the same time out of necessity. So I was just as good on the other instrument as I was the other. And that was something that really helped me in my career later on in life, because there were times when guitar was not that in demand, but bass really was, and then vice versa. Okay. So... Back to your progress through your career. Now you're uh, now you're in LA playing uh, playing nothing and and working at a music store and trying to figure out where to go from there. Where'd you go for there? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I was working in the store. I was actually playing bass with one of the other guys in the store. And John, that guy that I told you about, he had moved to LA, and we started a trio. We started working at the Sundance Saloon in Calabasas, and we, we which was a biker bar at the time. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we moved across the street to, you know, the, uh, uh, I can't remember, but Sun, uh, yeah, what's it called? You know, the famous place that's in, in Calabasas there. Anyway, so yeah, we- Yeah, I know where you're talking about. It's kind of yeah. a ranch kind of thing. We were playing there too. So anyway, we started playing around, <clears throat> and we were getting gigs because we would talk to people in the store, and they would ask us if they knew a band, and we go, yeah, we're right here, you know? <laughs> And so we started working and making, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 dollars here and there, a free pitcher of beer, you know, and I thought, started thinking, well, you know, I, I could augment my income here in LA playing music, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so eventually in the store one day, a guy walks in, a bass player, his name is Jim Bell. I'll never forget him. He was from Jersey. I never really met anybody from New York before. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. He came in, he goes, oh, yeah. I'm, he goes, I'm in this band and they're like, we're getting ready to go on the road and we've been rehearsing with another guitar player. And, we have an agency and we have a tour, uh, but the guitar player just had a falling out with the lead singer and the drummer who are married. And we need a guitar player like right now. I mean, we got to go out next week or something like that. So 
I went like, you know, uh, I had just gotten in a fight with a biker in my neighborhood and I kicked his ass because I was a football player. <laughs> he used me of, of, of being with his girlfriend who wasn't even his girlfriend. It was just somebody he wished with his girlfriend. And she had invited me over to her apartment and we had done a, a kind of a hang one night with another girl. And it's like, we never had any sex. We just smoked some weed and listened to the Moody Blues and got her to the sheets and did Nights in White Satin, they call it. <laughs> And so I never did anything with this woman, but he had accused me and he was attacking me in the parking lot. He was a couple of years older than me and I picked him up. I bounced his head off the pavement and I got on top of him and I held him down. I said, you know, <clears throat> why are you doing this? I mean, I don't understand why you think I've done it. I haven't done anything, you know, and he's all uh, and his friend is going, dude, he kicked your ass. You look like, a, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> he says, I'm going to kill you. And I went like, oh, I just, I've heard that before. Sure enough, I was coming home from work one day from Slippers, and he had a 22, and he fired a shot off my windshield of my car right. from his balcony. This is on Owens Mouth and Satakoy in Canoga Park in a really seedy neighborhood of really old 1950s apartments that had cockroaches in them. That's where I was living. So when this guy came in and said they needed a guitar player to go on the road immediately, I went, I'll go, because I didn't <laughs> want you know, and so we, he, the, the girl, the, that night, the drummer and the guitar, the girl came over to my apartment in that CD apartment with the cockroaches running around. Mm -hmm. I played a couple songs. I think I played Beginnings by Chicago. I think I played uh, Long Train Running and sang it. I played Flute on Color My World and I sang yeah. it. Yeah. Oh my God, they were really impressed because I played Flute in the orchestra in college and all stuff. Yeah. So I could learn how to read guitar music because Flute and guitar are the same key of C on the same ledger line and I learned how to play trombone because it's the same as bass in terms of you know the ledger lines and bass club so I was pretty well versed as being a player I just hadn't had any experience I was 18 uh and they hired me so I didn't go home that night I stayed with Jim Bell at his house because this guy wanted to kill me mm -hmm. and so I would come home like about one in the morning, take a shower, change clothes, leave by six because I know he was drinking beer and he was probably totally passed out. And so I didn't have to worry about him trying to shoot me. So this went on for about a week and I eventually went on my first tour with a band called Sandcastle and we worked for a company called Centaur Artists that was out of up by Mulholland and Laurel Canyon, this lady who was in the Zigfield Follies. And <laughs> wow. Her son was in the Mouseketeers, and they had an agency, and they trained bands and put them on the road. And we were working for the, the Hilton Smugglers Inn Steakhouse chain. So we went on the road, and that's when I had my first experience of playing in a California cover band all over the United States and getting the adoration that I had had in eighth grade when I played bass that one night. And really, really saw, wow, I could make a living do them. Of course, my parents were freaking out. And, but... I was making pretty good money and I was sending them the money. I would get my paycheck and I would put it into a money order and I'd send it to my parents. And they were like, eh, well, let's see how long he can do this, you know? And so they saved up my money for me and my car was parked. They were living in Marina del Rey by that time. They'd moved from Sacramento back to LA. So that's how I kind of got started was out of necessity of fear for my life, I was able to go off and do this tour. And that's when I met my first living girlfriend. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, the yeah. story I heard 
was a hardworking girl. She pawned her wedding ring because she just got over divorce to buy me stage clothes, and she fed me and took care of me. And so I, you have to always find a really great believer, a cheerleader in you when you're starting out a musician. Because like you say, you're a narcissist. You're totally living in a fantasy world, and you think you're going to make it. And you have to have somebody that believes in you that's sponsoring you. You know, just like Van Gogh's brother. I mean, he had to keep sponsoring him before, you know, he got some good art. And, of course, it didn't even sell until after he shot himself. So, you know, <laughs> typical artist thing. You know, you're, you're, you have to do it no matter what. It's the curse. The story I heard was that, uh, that uh, you were young and you went to a uh, Steve Miller Band concert. And well, that was really early. That was when I was back in Sacramento. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to a show at the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium. Right. Parents wouldn't allow me to go to rock shows. I was about 13. Mm -hmm. and I heard Steve Miller on the pirate radio station that was coming up from San Francisco, which was uh, Tom Donahue. K-San. K-San. Yeah. Tom Donahue was my mentor. He didn't know it, yeah. but he was the guy that programmed my brain because we didn't have we we didn't have KMET yet in Sacramento. We just had KSAN coming up from the Delta, and I heard Children of the Future, and I just thought it was the greatest thing. And eventually, living in the USA, and I love Steve Miller. I thought like this guy's kind of overweight a little bit. He's he, you know, he doesn't look like your typical pale faced, black haired. You know, he didn't look like the Stones or Jeff Beck. He looked like an American person, you know. Right. And I thought, I could do this. I could be. And then, of course, Terry Kath eventually in Chicago was my other mentor. Because, you know, Steve and Terry and I, we all look like football players. Let's face it. You know, we're big guys. You know, how do you do that in rock and roll? It's hard. I had a long conversation with Meatloaf at one point when we were touring in 93 about this. But anyway, I could, I saw Steve and I thought I could do this. So my parents would let me go. I had a paper out. I bought a ticket. I didn't tell him I was going. I said I was going to my friend Dennis Hannigan's house to do homework. I lied. I walked down the tracks all the way to downtown Sacramento and I went to the show. And they didn't want me to go so they didn't want me smoking weed. And, you know. I could understand that. So I'm in the audience. I'm watching Steve Miller. He comes out. It's just a trio. It's just Lonnie and Tim and him. And he's not even playing guitar most of the night. He's playing harmonica. He's trying to be like Paul Butterfield. I'm going, would you play the guitar? I want to hear your guitar. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, here it comes. Here's the joint. They're passing it around. Spelling it. Ooh, this is kind of interesting. Okay, so I get high. And now I'm looking at him and I'm going, I'm going to work with you one day. And I keep pointing at him, you know, and I'm looking at him and he's, and I'm thinking I'm getting eye contact with him. And I've told him this story before and he just laughs. And I think, and I, I'm thinking he's looking at me and I'm going like, I'm going to work with you one day. <laughs> you and I are going to do something together someday. And I didn't think much of it. And then of course I, you know, of course the night went on and I, the, the encore, he went off the stage for the encore I knew I was in deep trouble with my parents. So I went to the front. I got a dime. I called my folks. I said, look, I'm not dead. I know you've called Dennis's. I know you got the police looking for me, but I'm at the Memorial Auditorium at Steve Miller concert. I just had to go. And my dad goes, oh my God, are you in trouble? Come home right now. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't think so. I'm going to watch the encore. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well. Yeah. And so I went, Okay. 
I watch the encore, and of course, by the time I'm coming out of the encore, he's got the station wagon pulled up to the exit, and he's waiting for me. You know, you know, you know, doing this thing on the hood of the car. You know, mm. and I was in big trouble. I think I was grounded for weeks on end. I couldn't believe it. So, uh, but I got to see Steve Miller, and I, I thought that I, I, I think that I communicated with him. And so in my head, I'm going, I'm going to work with him someday. And it's like. And then I completely forgot about it a week later. You know, it's like no big deal. So it wasn't until 1982 when we were working on the Abracadabra album over Capitol Records, and I was a studio bass player, double scale, working all the time, making good money. Now, this is like 10 years later, 10, 15 years later. 1981. It was 41 years ago. And I'm sitting there, and he's recording my original material for his album. And he calls me down to help produce the album because... He just liked my guitar playing and bass playing. He liked my input, you know, whatever. He kept my bass and guitar tracks from my demo because he transferred our masters that we had done as a demo. That's a whole other story. So what I'm leading to is that I'm looking at him. He's mixing. He's moving the faders. And I'm looking at him. And he's just a peer at this point. He's just some guy that needed my songs and my services, you know. And I'm looking at him, and I kind of went, oh, my God, that night that night and i went oh my god <laughs> it's like a refrigerator magnet moment where you just go like be careful what you wish for because you just might get it <laughs> so that amazing. was an interesting thing to, to extrapolate on the the story that you'd heard that's incredible that's a great story and you've and been I, with and he just laughs he just goes oh god that's ridiculous of course i never saw you you know la, la, la. and i go well something happened you know, oh, he doesn't. He doesn't even know that it's a true story. Well, it's projection. It's it's that Zig Ziglar, Napoleon Hill projection that you learn when you learn sales. Yeah. You know, you just have to do a refrigerator magnet if you want it that bad. You got to put the yacht up there. You got to put the mansion up there, and you got to look at it every day. This is great. I'm really enjoying this conversation because I'm 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 hearing you. I'm not you know, and I'm not asking all the regular typical questions about your your career and where you know. I mean, we're kind of going down that road. I want to know how you got from there to here, but we don't need to go over the thousands of people you played with and the places you played and all that stuff. We don't have time for it. But I want I thought one of the thing that, uh, that you and I kind of have in common it just blew my mind, and that is that you've written a book. You've written a novel. Um, I have written plays that have been produced. I wrote one uh, short novel that was based on one of my plays, and they're 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 kind of on the same theme. I mean, it's just really weird. So I started reading your book, Skeleton Dolls. Really, I'm uh -huh. about a third of the way through it, and I'm just uh, I just love it. Um, I'm yeah. actually trying to get an agent right now on the sequel because it's a trilogy, and. I haven't had any action and it involves the 2024 election i already changed it from the 2020 election to the 2024 i'm late get delivering it but i have to get it out because i think i'm hoping that it might have an influence on people's vote and but it is a story the politics part of it was just a convenient thing as of my trauma that i went through in 2016 over the whole thing when bernie didn't get the primary you know mm -hmm. So that was really hard for me. And so I wrote this novel as a frustration based upon that. And uh, I just haven't had any action on that. So I got it self-published it, I think, because I'm not getting any action. So I'm just working on that and getting that done right now, getting the artwork done. I, I haven't, like as I said, I'm, I'm, I just uh, I came up to part three last night. 
I have wow. very little time to read because I get up at 2.30 in the morning. So I go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. And I read a little bit and it's like 20 minutes and I'm out. So it takes me a while, but um, it's really a good book. It's a page turner, but the, I, I, you know, it's, it's parapsychology. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's almost fantasy. And uh, fantasy. There, there, there are aspects of fantasy in there. And I was going to say, and I'm, I'm guessing, I won't give it away, but I'm guessing that uh, you took some inspiration from a Dutch death metal band. Did you? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. The band uh, is called... The band is called Aspics. I did not know that. <laughs> well, there was a movie that was called Aspics. Actually, I talk about that in this next book because I, I didn't I didn't make up that term. It was a movie that was from the 60s. It was from England. And it was about the very thing we're talking about. And this guy was trying to capture it in a chemical encasement that was kind of like a coffin looking thing, you know, that had chemicals and lights and wires. And he was trying to capture the asphyx soul that comes out of our body when we're when we pass. If you can capture it and put it in a bottle, then you become, you know, immortal. You know, and that was that movie, and that was the asphyx title of that movie so that was my inspiration was that movie where does politics come into this well <clears throat> think about it you're reading the book <clears throat> the book by the way the first 10 chapters are a true story i don't know oh, if really I, I don't i thought i said that in the preface but maybe I, you did i don't remember it but i don't skimmed over it. but the first 10 chapters are a true story about identical twins that i had met and i'd met their mother and she was the one that was telling me how weird and scary they were when they were little girls and the, some of the stuff they did. So the whole scenario you heard, you read about with them digging up the horse and trying to, yeah. react, which is actually the title of the skeleton doll. Yeah. was a true story. That's amazing. Yeah. They That's were a wonderful story. The, the horse, cause they missed it so much. They wanted to ride it again. I mean, these are little girls that don't know about biology and muscle and, you know, nerves and yeah. they just wanted to have the horseback and the skeleton when it reassembled looks very similar to a horse you know and that's what they were assembling on the side of the grave and that is a true story when i heard this the hair on my arm stood up and i asked the mother i said do you think i could kind of run with this and make it kind of a stephen king dan brownie uh -huh. kind of story and she said yeah just change the names i don't care you know and i got approval from the the, the daughters who really is kind of what it's, who it's about and I ran with it that way. And that's how I started with that book. It was off of a true story. Well, it's very exciting. Uh, you know, having, having been in that position where I'm sitting down trying to, because I can, I can string words together really nicely. I can do good uh, dialogue. I love the sequel because the sequel kind of sews up everything that I fantasize about yeah. in the first book. I explain as a reality in the second book. I actually like have proof of stuff that makes it go like, huh? You know, because I use the Old Testament of, of a, a lot of the, uh, you yeah. know, the excerpts of it. I use the origins of the Druids along with Merlin. Right, of right. That are all part of the original language of God prior to the Tower of Babel being destroyed, which is all Old Testament. I didn't write that. That's in the Old Testament. So if you read Torah and you're a Christian, you believe that the Tower of Babel did exist or something similar. And there was a language that we all spoke that was one language on earth where we could speak directly to God and he would answer verbally in our ears, not in our mind and telekinesis or telepathy or anything. It says in the Bible, 
you know, God said and Noah answered. That's what it says. It doesn't say I, he heard it in his head and he thought back. Or they spoke a language. So that's the language that has the power that's been suppressed by the church because only Jesus can have that power. We can't all have that. We can't be sharing. And that's, that's the language that the girls are speaking to each other. They sing it, and it's a yeah. part of that's been passed down to mother to daughter for thousands of years. And it comes from the Druids, but it's older than the Druids. And my second book explains who the people were that the Druids got it from. Wow. On earth. So when, uh, how are you doing with it? When When's that going to be finished? Well, I can't get an agent to bite on it because it's got the politics involved and probably you're shying from the politics part because oh. because you know, as you know, the twins can raise the dead with their yeah. singing and their incantations and the language of God. And when they parley with with Samuel, the aspects, they can get the animus soul to be restored back into the body if it hasn't rotted out. You know, I mean, obviously the body has to be fresh and it has to be either on ice or something. It can't be a body that's already you know started to decompose. Right, that doesn't work. But if the body is intact they can get it to come back in and restart if all the body fluids are there and blah, 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 you know, as long as the brain hasn't been starved of oxygen too long or is frozen in cryogenic situation, you can reanimate because that's something that they're actually working on right now. You can Google that stuff and they're really getting farther and farther with that to the point. Why do you think people are freezing their heads? Right. You know, rich people are freezing their heads. Why are they doing that? Yeah. You know, when they pass away, because they think in the future they'll be able to do this. Your stuff that what you wrote there about uh, the things that go on with the uh, the experimentation in the is it the Mobius Institute? Yeah, well, that's really? kind of like the X Men, you know, that's that. Yeah. yeah, but 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 really, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know how much of that. See, I can't hear you when I'm talking, it just cuts you out completely. But uh, I, I was wondering how much of that. I mean, you get into some pretty technical scientific stuff that's really impressive. Did you make well, that up? Are you that good at that? Or did you, is well, that I real was, research and stuff? When I was going to college, the other alternative to being a musician was to be a marine biologist or a veterinarian or something. So I really did well in life sciences. So I kind of understand chemical and electrical life science because I kind of studied it a little bit in college. Not a lot. And I've read about it more probably afterwards, but enough to get me in trouble <laughs> with writing, which, of course, most writing is really just sales. And in sales, we make up stuff. You know, the car salesman tells you that the polygon that's on the car is really going to help it. And the undercoat, you know, I mean, you, you have to have it. It's another 500 bucks, but you're right. really, have it. you know, it's all a bunch of BS. You know, you make this stuff up because you want to sell the product and in this case we're selling a story and so what we do as novelists is we like dan brown <clears throat> you use art you use architecture you use history you use location geographical and then you use religion to kind of make your story believable mm -hmm. when really if you this is dissected i mean there's holes in it everywhere and it's leaking like a sieve but if you shore it up enough and you make it really float nice from chapter to chapter, and you have the cliffhanger on every end of every chapter, then people are compelled to move forward and kind of believe your BS. And that's what sure. we do with novelists. We are just compelling you to believe a sales pitch 
on a story. And that's really what we're doing as novelists. We're, we're allowing people to kind of be on a fantasy ride, not unlike music when we're up there. I mean, I look at me, I look at the age I am. I haven't dyed my beard in weeks because I've been up in Montana fly fishing and just hanging out. But I get on stage and I transform into a 40 year old man, even though I'm 68 years old in October. And I shake my booty and there's a lot of females in the first three or four rows that and males too that are looking at me and they're going he's pretty cool man he's rocking he looks good and he's kind of sexy <laughs> all the things i'm really not you know i'm kind of can impersonate that but i'm just a fantasy i'm just and then when i come off stage they want my autograph in the first 20 minutes in the first 30 minutes they might point go oh you were really good and then if we meet in a bar an hour later they're going I had that chair before you, so can you get out of the way? <laughs> they don't even remember who I am by then. And that's a fantasy thing that's just a front, that you allow the people to ride on that wave for a moment in time that you give as a gift freely that your own ego and your own personality cannot be a part of. You have to separate from that. You have to completely divorce yourself from the fantasy of the stage because the stage is a drug and it's just like you, you can become addicted to that and you can get lost in that. And then if you don't get it, you could get depressed and you end up over ODing like all those 27 year old guys did in the 60s, you know, because they just couldn't keep that <sighs> bicycle pump. You know, you have to keep pumping up that inner tube you know, to keep it going, you know. <laughs> it just starts to leak, 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 and, you're, and it's leaking faster than you can pump the pump. You just blow up, you know what I mean? Yeah. Tell me about your wife, Diane, Diane Steinberg. She's in the sky with diamonds. She's the yeah. only one that ever existed. She was in the movie. She was in the Sgt. Pepper movie, which she sang the song, and that was her role as Lucy. And that was the song that John Lennon envisioned in his mind about this fantasy character named Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And Diane actually became that as a character. So she's really the only one that's ever existed. So married to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that, she's just an incredible musician, uh, actor, singer, songwriter, and then a legacy to an incredible musical family who grew up with Elvis Presley and trained him, which was never mentioned in this new movie because nobody knows the story. It's never been told. And I've written a screenplay book documentary about their family growing up down there in Memphis before he even showed up. They invented rock and roll. And he just kind of showed up and went, boy, you guys are great. She, he really wanted to be my father-in-law, Luther Steinberg, who had the, the thing coming down on his head before this, the suits from Lansky's sexy on stage, Calvin, his guitar player doing all the hip moves and everything. That's what Elvis wanted to be was Calvin newborn and Luther Steinberg. And I can prove it. And I have interviews with people and it's never been told because the Colonel, the character that Tom Hanks played didn't want him telling that story mm -hmm. because Oh, that story he wasn't the kangaroo rock and roll anymore. He's just a sponge. He was just a fortunate sponge who became an ambassador for a black idiom that they invented in 1948, 49 that was already going on by the time he came in 1953. Rock and roll was like kind of old hat by then in Memphis. It was just like a, a way to make money like disco. It was just like something you could do if you were a jazz musician, you want to make a little money, you get in a smaller rhythm section and you put on, you know, loud clothes and you move real funny and you throw the bass up on top of your head and you move your hips a certain way and you get the women all worked up. 
They invented that, not him. He just was a guy that was watching and going, man, that's really cool. I think I'd like to do that. Just like but, me in grade when I was playing the bass and Renee Ballard came up to me and then I said, ah, I think I'd like to do this. That's what Elvis did. He wanted to, he didn't really mean to appropriate the black idiom like a theft. He just liked it. Yeah. And because he was a nice guy, yeah. they let him sit in with their band. My father-in-law used to let him sit in with his band all the time. And they would let him sit in the wings at the Club Paradise over in, you know, uh, you know Mississippi on the other side, West Memphis, they called it. And mm -hmm. they'd sit there and watch Calvin do his hip moves. And then he would go home to, Cal to Phineas Newborn's house, who was a, the great drummer, played with uh, Lionel Hampton and all that, invented the, what they call the mash beat. And everything. Elvis idolized him and his wife, the Rose, He'd go home and have dinner with them. And he'd go, like, how do I put a show together? Should I dye my blonde hair black? Nobody Did they show that in the movie, that he was a blonde? No, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> He's a blonde. He dyed his hair black to be like my father-in-law. I mean, yeah. so I, without going into great detail, <laughs> my wife's family is at the very, very zenith of when jazz and blues became rock and roll. They were there. They invented it. And they were there, and she grew up around that. So she comes from an incredible musical legacy. Not that was to it. I mean, the queen, her mother, who went in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as being the first black female DJ of all time, yeah. not only star on WDIA, but to go up to WJLB in Detroit mm -hmm. and break all the Motown act. She did all that for America. I worked in Memphis and, uh, in 1973 or four. And uh, radio station here, WHBQ. And our morning guy was George Klein, who was, who was Elvis's best friend in high school. Huh? That, was, that was her first job. Yeah. No, it wasn't my first job. No, I mean, it was Martha Jean's first job when she moved from Memphis to Detroit. She was working on that station for. Oh, 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 I see. Yeah. When I talk, I can't hear you at all. 1963, 64. She got oh, a job. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I, I never met Elvis, but I knew a lot of people who knew Elvis, and uh, I heard a lot of people that referred to him kind of as, if, if it makes any sense, they uh, affectionately as a performing monkey. Um, just that he didn't have any, as what you were saying, what I got from you was that uh, he didn't have uh, any real deep need to do anything in particular. He just uh, he just liked to sing, and he liked uh, so he liked what he liked. It was a combination of what they had created in the late forties. Mm -hmm. He liked gospel music. He just liked the spiritual feeling he got when he would go to Brewster's church, which we've always known about. We've always known about Brewster's church in our family forever. You know, he went there and he just got moved by that church because they were sanctified, holy rollers. He'd never seen anything like that before. And he loved the songs too. So he really honestly was an appreciator of that music. When the blues started coming into it and he heard, you know, oh, that's all right, mama, you know, and hound dog and all that stuff that had already been created, but he just liked that too, because he liked the ruggedness and the, uh, the rawness of it, you know? And then when he saw the moves, the Calvin was doing on guitar with his hips and all that. He said, wow. And he saw the women throwing their phone numbers at Calvin and a hundred dollar bills. He would go like, that's really cool. I think I, I really like that. And he brought and so, the entire white race with him. Yeah, and so, and they liked him. And let me, I mean, they show in the movie that he grew up in the projects. His dad had been, you know, gone to jail for, you know, writing bad checks. We always knew about that. 
So he grew up around black people. And so when he got teased in high school about hanging around black folks and, and beat up and had rotten vegetables thrown at him and all that stuff, he still hung out with the black folks. He didn't let that discourage him. He didn't go all Ku Klux Klan just because his white friends were teasing him. He stayed with appreciating what the black people were doing. And that was his greatest gift to himself was to stay true to what he loved. And so when he brought that forward, he was the ambassador for what they had already created. They all said, Elvis, you're going to have to take this to the world because we're black people. My wife is black, by the way. She's light-skinned black. You have to take this to, to the world because we can't because of Jim Crow. They won't allow us on mainstream radio, terror radio. I mean, you're going to have to take this to the world. And of course, that's when he went out with, you know, with Sam Phillips. He was signed to Sam Phillips the same time my father-in-law was, you know. Yeah. My father-in-law had records out before he did in 1951. And uh, so he really thought that he could be that. Just that narcissist belief, he could be on Sun Records. He got on Sun Records. They couldn't launch him. He went to Tri-State only. He went over to, the, did they show him going to the, to, the, uh, rock, uh, to, the, to the Grand Ole Opry and being rejected? Did they show that in the movie? No. Did you see the movie? No. I haven't seen it. But I don't know that. He goes to the Grand Ole Opry. They go, get out of here. So he goes back to, to Memphis, and he's totally depressed. You know, Blue Moon of Kentucky got a little airplay. You know, That's All Right Mama got a little bit. But he really was not taken off, you know. And that's when Sam needed the money to keep financing his record company and his studio. And that's when he sold to RCA for $25,000. Thirty-five thousand, sorry, thirty-five thousand dollars. That's a lot of money back then, you know. Wait, so no that kidding. he took the thirty-five grand, you know, bought himself a Cadillac and a new house, and got a studio running, and he was fine. He just went under the next act, which was probably Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, or you know, Carl Perkins. Yeah. Kenny, I've taken an hour of your time, and uh, it's been fascinating. You, 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 you really should be, uh, you should be writing your own story. And I recently, yeah. uh, I recently I'm, read. Pardon me? I'm sorry. I have a lot more living to do, so I'm still writing it. Well, I understand. I was just going to say that I recently read uh, Keith Richards' autobiography, Life. Man, what a story that is, and what a, what a writer he is. Um, and, and you come across the same way in having just this, this fullness of the excitement of life and, and the things that you do. You strike me as somebody who gets up first thing in the morning going, yeah. I get to do this again, and uh, it's delightful. But I'm still ten feet from stardom, you know. I mean, sometimes I'm two feet from stardom because you know Steve and I'll be standing right. But I've never had a hit record. I've never written a hit record. I've never played on a hit record. Abracadabra had Gerald Johnson and Gary Manilow and Byron and Steve. I didn't play on that. I helped produce her solo, but I didn't. I didn't play it. I had the flip side. I had the B side. I had the second single, but they weren't hits. So I've never had a hit record. I've never sang on a hit record. I've never played on a hit record. So I'm ten feet from stardom. And I so thought you. I thought you wrote some of uh, some of the, the Steve Miller Band's hits. Didn't you write some of the seven titles with them on re record? None of them were hit singles. They got airplay. Yeah, they airplay, but they never were hit single. But we can get a hit. You know, you don't really even have to do blogs, video blogs anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> You just disappear, you know, you're just in this other world, you know. You become like Lenny Kravitz living in the Caribbean, you know, you come out once in a while to play, you know. And it's, you know, 
I am hardworking, blue collar. I have to continually struggle and hustle. So even as much as you think I've created, this is just a blue collar job. And it's always something that I'm having to chase. And that's part of the curse that I talked about earlier is that you're still chasing that dream, thinking that you're going to get a big break where you can kind of relax and retire, blah, blah, blah. That's never happened for me. You're the most humble narcissist I've ever met. <laughs> that's funny. That's that's good. I like that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> I see uh, by your schedule, y'all are going out to uh, Northeast. You're going to New Hampshire and Connecticut and Saratoga Springs. And I yeah. guess you'll probably take your fly pole because it looks like you got a few days off in between in areas that might have a little bit of fishing for you. You're a real passionate fisherman, aren't you? I am. Uh, I won't do any fishing on this next leg because my wife is going to be with me. and she. Oh. Would... So I'm not taking the pole. I ain't going. I, I fished my brains out last week. So, you know, that was fun. Uh, we're going to go to Broadway shows. We're going to go on Colbert. We're going to go eat pizza and, you know, go look at the New York site. So, you know, we're going to hang. So it'll be fun. Thank you. I'll be back home again, not working for three weeks in August. I see I have my own bands here locally. Yeah. And because of COVID, I had to start getting that going again. I even bought a PA again. I never owned a PA for many, many years. But because of COVID and because of me having to work and do other types of live performances, I'm working around here. So I'm working for, you know, small dough. But at least I can keep my chops up. I'm pleasing the people. I'm bringing that gift, which is a, my ministry. Yeah. And I do it really without... You know, I don't expect a big paycheck, you know, but if people give me money, that's a blessing. And I just accept it. You know, there you go. Well, thank you again. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I was really looking forward to it. And it was much better than I anticipated because you did almost all the talking. Well, thanks, David Williams. And I'm sorry that I ate up all your audio. <laughs> no, 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 not, not at all. It's perfect. I appreciate it. I, just a, on a side note, David Williams was the guitar player who played with Michael Jackson for many years. He was a very good friend of mine. He's passed away now, but he and I were very close along with James Jamison Jr. back in the days when I used to play in the Black Chitlin Circuit. And that's another story we talked about another time. But when I got when I first heard your name, I went, I love him already. Uh, <laughs> well, you you can go out and hit throw a rock and probably have a pretty good chance of hitting a David Williams. But yeah. uh, thank you so much, Kenny Lee. It's just uh, it's just been a real pleasure. And like I said, I felt some immediate kinship when I looked at it. I said, look at, look at how many things we got in common. For God's sakes, we both work for, we both work for Don Jewell. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I used to play the Pear Pow Palace and Crabshaw Corners. <laughs> I even tried to sell, uh, try to save the Alhambra Theater with, with a, a concert we did for them. But they I was, up. I was out there with the crowds. Yeah, me and Craig Casico, who was eventually in Craig's, uh We didn't talk about him. He was a good friend. Starship. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I may be talking to him like next week. Star Tech, it sounds, at the sound of music. Yeah. Anyway, I'll talk to you later. We got more to talk about another time. God bless you. Keep broadcasting. Thank you, man. Have a great day. Take care.
Mr. Kenny Lee Lewis on the guitar. Gordy Knudsen on the drums. Bill Peterson on the bass. Norton Buffalo on the congos and vocals. Joseph Wooten on the keyboards and vocals. And San Francisco's own. Joe Satriani on the guitar. Thank you, Joe. Peace, love, and happiness, brother. He'll be back in a few minutes.